It's the end of the world as we know it, and I feel fine. As a child of the 1980s, this song by R.E.M. was part of the soundtrack of my youth. But I have found it returning to the forefront of my mind on several occasions in recent days. And I imagine this might have something to do with this smoky haze from Canadian wildfires making it impossible to ignore that our neighbor to the north is literally on fire. And then there are the never-ending stream of headlines reminding us that from Arizona to Italy to India, people are sweltering under the record-breaking temperatures sweeping our globe. Meanwhile, the war in Ukraine rages on, the political fabric of our nation continues to disintegrate, and developments in artificial intelligence conjure dystopian scenarios that are almost too frightening to contemplate. So it's reasonable to ask, is this the end of the world as we know it? And how exactly are we supposed to feel about that? Apocalypse may not have been the easy, breezy, summer sermon topic you were anticipating today, but I'm convinced that it's something we don't talk enough about, and that's a shame because the church has rather a lot to say about it. Indeed, the Christian scriptures and Christian theology place this topic at the very center of our faith. That great apocalyptic book of Revelation describes that final day in these comforting words that we quite often read at funerals. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And in this new creation, God will wipe every tear from the eyes of those who mourn, and death will be no more. Now, I'm aware that the subject of Judgment Day and the Second Coming makes many good Episcopalians more than just a little uncomfortable, and there's good reason for that. This doctrine of our faith has been tainted by certain fundamentalists who somehow seem more interested in predicting the exact date of Jesus' return than in anticipating the reign of peace and tranquility his return will bring. But our response, our solution to that problem, should not be just to ignore the second coming or to relinquish it, but to reclaim it as a hopeful promise of restored creation, a promise of that future when wars and fighting will come to an end forever. This is a message of good news the world needs to hear. Now, our gospel reading from Matthew this morning points us to that future in this passage we most often call the parable of the wheat and the tares. Here, Jesus points us toward that, that day of final reckoning when evil will be defeated once and for all and the seeds of sin thrown into a fiery furnace. Now, Underneath all that language of fire and brimstone, what we actually have is a profound message of grace. But I'd like to focus us this morning instead on the words of our patron, St. Paul. 
in his letter to the church in Rome. Now, Paul's letter to the Romans is, by many measure, his greatest contribution to the canon of Scripture. It is his magnum opus, and perhaps more than any other letter, expounds upon core concepts of Christian theology from sin and righteousness to faith and works to justice and election, just to name a few. But in this morning's reading, Paul speaks to the tension that we feel of living between the first and second comings of Christ. He actually, if you notice, he uses the analogy of a woman in childbirth to describe our experience of suffering and adversity as something that gives way to profound new life. And he also points us to that future when, quote, creation will be set free from the bondage of decay to obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. In these words, Paul reminds us that while our present reality may include death and decay, our destiny is liberation and glory. Just as Jesus rose from death to eternal life, so too one day will we. And this earth will be remade into the paradise of Eden. Indeed, it is a hopeful promise of restoration. And you and I, well, we are supposed to wait in this time, not as a people who despair, but as a people who hope and who wait in patience for that which is not yet revealed. Now, if we want to know what it looks like to wait in patient hope, we have to look to the life of Jesus, the one who shows us that the sufferings of our present cannot compare with the glory of our future the one who shows us that it is precisely in the experience of struggle that the Holy Spirit is working in us and in the world to make all things new. And to come back to the planet, well, there is indeed an epic struggle underway there. There's no denying it that we have failed God who entrusted us with the sacred responsibility of caring for the earth this, our fragile island home. We see evidence of that all around us. And as people of faith, we are called to confess this sin of neglect and to commit ourselves to the work of ecological justice. And there are no shortage of faithful Christians and Christian communities leading this important work. And in their work, they struggle daily in the face of apathy, climate change deniers, and just the sheer massive scale of a global crisis. But we do not lose hope. As Dean Andrew McGowan of Yale Divinity School said this week, our hope, like birth pangs, is not an escape from suffering, but a new perspective 
on what is being achieved in us and the world around us. It may appear today like we are losing the struggle to save our planet. And it may sometimes appear like this is the end of the world as we know it. But underneath the stench of decay and the smoke of destruction, the God who raised Jesus Christ from the dead is making all things new by his Holy Spirit working in us. God will one day restore us and all creation to glory. This is God's promise to us. This is our great Christian hope. Amen.